Welcome back to the podcast. This is episode 13. This episode is all about expectations and how they impact your happiness and your performance and how well you're doing in life. I live in Seattle and Amazon is, of course, our giant employer. About a third of my neighborhood, I think, works for the company. That's not an exaggeration. And when Amazon was on top of the world in 2021, when its reputation was gleaming and its stock price was booming, you could feel that pride and prosperity in our neighborhood. You could practically smell it. I once heard the saying that 90% of corporate culture is just winning. When a company is winning, everyone is happy and they are becoming rich and they're getting promoted and they see their work as contributing to something bigger than themselves. That's what Amazon was in 2021. And then, of course, things changed. Jeff Bezos left the company. The stock price fell 50%. 20,000 employees were laid off and hundreds of thousands more feared that they're next. And now that is the scent that is crawling around my neighborhood. And it is so clear, it is so obvious that the mood around Amazon has shifted. So here's the question. What do you call that top of the world status that Amazon had in 2021? Was it a gift? What is it, a reward for hard work? Was it the natural swings of capitalism? Yes, it was all of those things. But there's another way to look at what it was. And that is an expectations debt. Expectations for Amazon were so high in 2021 that investors and employees had to achieve extraordinary things just to break even. And when the results were merely just good, that felt terrible and it felt like you were losing. Expectations are like a debt that must be repaid before you get any joy out of what you're doing. That's true not just for Amazon, but for individuals. It's true for everything you do in life. The hard thing is that every company and every employee wants to have what Amazon had in 2021. They want to win. They want wealth and prestige and a good reputation. But look at what it led to now after the expectations debt was repaid. And so then you ask, was it worth it? Was that boom in 2021? Was it worth it? It's hard to say. The Nikkei, which is the Japanese stock market equivalent of the Dow Jones Industrial Average, recently closed at its highest level since 1990. Now, there are two ways to look at that. One, you could say it's a win, that it's back at an all-time high. Or two, you could say it's an example of one of the worst performing stock markets of modern times, that it took 33 years to get back to its new high. But here's what's most interesting about the Japanese stock market, and it has to do with expectations. Returns over the last 33 years were terrible. They were 0% over an entire generation. But returns before that, the returns from 1965 to 1990 were extraordinary. They were off the charts. Now, if you look at the last 60 years, a much longer period, the Nikkei and the S&P 500 in the United States have very similar returns. They're just about the same. But the Nikkei earned all of those returns during this one massive 25-year surge in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, while the S&P 500 in the United States has been comparatively more even over time. From 1965 to 1990, the Nikkei returned about 14% per year, and the S&P 500 returned about 5% per year. But since 1990 to 2022, 
the Nikkei has returned 0% and the S&P 500 has returned about 8% per year. So look, I don't think it's fair to say the Japanese stock market stagnated over the last 33 years. What really happened is that 50 years of returns were stuffed into this 125-year period in the late 20th century. And the past three decades of misery has just been repaying that excess. So here again, the high expectations of 1990 were like a debt that had to be repaid before investors could get any benefit. No one got a statement for that debt. It didn't show up on anyone's balance sheet. No one knew what the interest rate on that debt would be. But it was a very real debt that anchored investors down and destroyed wealth and took a third of a century to pay off. One way to think about this is that an asset that you don't deserve can quickly become a liability. Maybe your stock portfolio surged during a bubble or your company hit a monster valuation or you negotiated a salary that exceeds your ability. All those things can feel great at the time, but reality eventually catches up and it demands repayment in equal proportion to your delusion, plus interest. These debts are easy to ignore because they are often repaid in the form of self-doubt and crushed morale in the case of Amazon, but they are very real. And when you understand their power, you become more careful about what you wish for. Companies should want a valuation that they deserve and not a penny more. Workers should want a salary that matches their skill and not a penny more. Families should want a lifestyle that they could sustain and nothing higher. None of those things that I just mentioned are about settling or giving up. It's about avoiding a certain kind of psychological debt that comes due when reality catches up. There's a stoic saying. It says, quote, misfortune weighs most heavily on those who expect nothing but good fortune. Expecting nothing but good news feels like such a good mindset because you're optimistic and you're happy and you're winning. But whether you know it or not, you are very likely piling up a hidden debt that must eventually be repaid. I heard the story not too long ago that I thought was great. Elon Musk said that he had lunch with Charlie Munger in 2009. And Munger allegedly told the whole table at this lunch all the ways that Tesla would fail. Musk said, it made me quite sad. But he said, I told him, Munger, that I agreed with all of those reasons and that we would probably die, but it was worth trying anyways. That is both sad, but also kind of inspiring because, of course, Tesla made it. But it's also, I think, this is more complicated than it looks. Munger was recently asked an unrelated question that adds a layer to Musk's point here. When he was asked, you seem extremely happy and content. What is your secret to living a happy life? Charlie Munger replied, quote, the first rule of a happy life is low expectations. If you have unrealistic expectations, you're going to be miserable your whole life. You want to have reasonable expectations and take life's results, good and bad, as they happen with a certain amount of stoicism. Now, I think these two guys, Musk and Munger, are actually making the exact same point here. And I think it's a really important point. Musk is right that some things that will probably fail are worth trying anyways. That's true for almost everybody in all areas of life because we live in a tail-driven world where a few events drive the majority of outcomes. It's a world that demands that you become comfortable with a lot of things not working and a lot of things failing and a constant chain of disappointment because success means that you tried 10 things and eight of them failed miserably, 
but two of them might change your life. That's what winning actually looks like. Munger, too, though, is right that unrealistic expectations assure misery for two reasons. One is that the world is fragile and volatile and a complicated place, and the only way to avoid disappointment is to expect it. The second is that progress tends to move the goalpost. So the only way to enjoy the modern world is if your expectations rise slower than its progress. Now, the common denominator between both of those guys is the superpower of having low expectations. And that is not intuitive because low expectations makes you think of a mopey pessimist who's like accomplished nothing. But I want to convince you that it's actually just the opposite. Several years ago, Elon Musk was asked about one of the hardest problems that he was dealing with at SpaceX. Its massive Starship had to cut weight everywhere it could so that the cost of each launch could become low enough that it could launch the thing all day long. Step one to cutting weight was cutting out the landing gear. So now rather than the rocket returning to Earth and landing on its own, the new design means that it comes down to Earth with its bottom exposed and it aims itself at a giant tower on the ground. And just before hitting the ground, this tower shoots out two enormous rods that grab the rocket like a parent that's catching a falling child. It's the wildest thing you'll ever see. Elon Musk once explained, he said, quote, we are talking about catching the largest flying object ever made on a giant tower with chopstick arms. It's like Karate Kid with the fly, but much bigger. He then laughed and he added the most important line. He said, quote, this probably won't work the first time. He says something along those lines about almost all of his endeavors. When a rocket failed to land five years ago, he said, quote, I didn't expect this one to work, but next flight has a good chance. When talking about the Starship's challenges a couple months ago, he said, quote, success is one of the possible outcomes. Three years ago, he tweeted, quote, to be frank, in the early days, I thought there was a 90% chance that both SpaceX and Tesla would be worth zero. The press and the aerospace and the automotive industry at the time correctly agreed with me. I don't think any of that is casual irreverence or just cocky risk-taking. I think it is purposely low expectations. And it is the only way to survive in a world that is not kind enough to reward every ambitious person with success. When people say that higher risk equals higher return, what they should actually be saying is that higher risk means I will probably earn lower returns most of the time. But there is a small chance that I'll earn very good returns that make up for it. That's the distinguishing factor of higher risk. It's the greater prevalence of failure, not the smaller chance that it has the potential to offset that failure. The key part here is that low expectations and accepting frequent losses increases the odds of sticking around long enough to eventually be right enough to make up for it, and then some. And that applies to ordinary people like me and you, not just maniacs like Elon Musk. In a boring index fund of 500 stocks, like the S&P 500, fewer than 20 make up most of the returns in any given year. Sometimes it's fewer than five companies make up the majority of the return. And the rest of the companies in the index, literally 80% or more of companies in the index, their returns usually range from okay to disastrous. 
So if you track every individual company, make sure you have very low expectations because that's how the world works. Charlie Munger was born in 1924. The richest man in the world that year was John D. Rockefeller, whose net worth equaled about 3% of GDP. Now today, 3% of GDP would equal something like $700 billion. $700 billion is the equivalent of what John D. Rockefeller was worth. It's just, you can't even wrap your head around that kind of number. But let's make just a short list of things that did not exist when John D. Rockefeller had that kind of money. He didn't have sunscreen, Advil, Tylenol, antibiotics, chemotherapy, flu and tetanus and measles and smallpox vaccines. He didn't have insulin for diabetes. He didn't have blood pressure medication. He didn't have fresh produce in the winter. He didn't have TVs. He didn't have microwaves. There were no overseas phone calls. There were no jets. To say nothing of computers or iPhones or Google Maps. Now, I think if you're honest with yourself, I don't think you or anyone else listening to this would trade Rockefeller's $700 billion in the early 1900s for an average life and an average wage in 2023. The average person is just so much better off today with the things that they can enjoy in life than Rockefeller had access to with his fortune back in his day. But I think that is hard to admit because all of the insane luxuries that Rockefeller didn't have are now considered basic necessities. And everything works like that. All luxuries become necessities in due time. It's why Louis C.K., the comedian, once said, everything is amazing and nobody is happy. The only way to counter that truth is to go through life with purposely low expectations. Don't expect a lot of economic growth. Don't expect great investing returns. Don't expect a ton of innovation. Don't expect politics to improve. Be okay with things staying roughly the way they are right now or even getting a little bit worse. Because for most people, the way things are right now is indistinguishable from magic relative to how things used to be. And then if you do that... Any little improvement that happens to come along feels incredible. You appreciate it more. Low expectations don't make you depressed. They do the opposite. They make a little gain feel amazing, while bad news tends to feel normal. That's not easy, because the knee-jerk way to set expectations is to anchor to what everyone else has right now. But imagine the tragedy of there being unbelievable progress throughout your life, and you enjoy none of it because you expected all of it. My friend Brent B. Short has a theory about marriage. He says, it only works when both people want to help their spouse while expecting nothing in return. And if you both do that, you are both pleasantly surprised. That's a good model for a lot of things. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time.